as the women approach that tomb, as we read in Mark just a little bit ago, it wasn't by happenstance that they were passing by. Oh, there's a tomb here. By no means. They went to the tomb intentionally with, an, with great interest as to what needed, as far as they knew, to unfold. They had bought, purchased spices in order to complete a burial that, due to the, to, due to the Sabbath, had been done hastily and was never really completed as it needed to be. So number one, they came with these spices and they wanted to give this one whom they loved, who as far as they were concerned had done nothing wrong, knew nothing of which he ought to have been put to death, was brutally crucified by the Romans at the behest of the Jews. And in their sorrow, in their pain, and in their grief, they're going to go to the tomb now and they're going to finish the burial. So minimally... They can leave this moment and know that they've left their loved one's body lying properly prepared, respectfully prepared, as it would have been done within that culture, so that they could grieve with a sense of peace that they had done what they could. So they came to finish a proper burial. They came with a question, clearly Mark accounts for us, there's a question that they have on their minds. As they come, this handful of women, they're aware... That in burial in that day, there was a a doorway cut into the side of a mountain. And if you paid attention to the backgrounds to our songs, you got a good depiction. It was a drawing, but it was a good depiction, exactly what was there. They'll cut a doorway into a mountainside, and then they'll cut an opening into into that rock. And then they cut a stone, which is about this big, about that thick, and that big around, and they roll that in place over the doorway. And they know, well... Something else is going to have to happen. Although we've got the spices, we have no idea how that stone is going to get moved because we physically can't do it. We will not be strong enough for that. And I have to believe also there's one other thing in their minds. As they come with this intense interest in that tomb that morning, and the other thing is, what about the authorities around that tomb? Because they would be aware aware that, that the Jewish leaders had gone to Pilate and said, look, this character said that he was going to raise again the third day. Now what we can't have is his followers come stealing the body and then claiming that he was raised the third day and now we're going to have a bigger problem than we're trying to get rid of. And so Pilate placed a Roman guard. So they knew that both the, Hebrew, the Jewish leaders and the Romans had, an, had their own interest in not getting that tomb opened. And so they may very well need to get around these guards that had been stationed there. And they don't know how they're going to do that. So they came with this intense interest in the tomb, with these questions as to how they were going to fulfill what they were intending to do. And each of their questions would be answered very shortly. But none of them were answered in the way they expected. They arrive on the scene. There is somebody of authority there. But the authority that Mark accounts for us is that of an angel. They came with the intent of finishing a burial process, an embalming process. Uh, Yeah, they're not going to get to do that because this angel has already seen to it that the stone has moved away. And he says, "Uh, you come looking for Jesus? Well, guess what? He's risen. He's not there. 
Go tell his disciples. He'll meet them in Galilee. But he's risen. When the angel, friends, when the angel declared he is risen. I mean, we're say, we've greeted one another with that this morning. Around the world today, believers all the way around the world are giving that greeting to one another. He is risen. And quite often we respond, he is risen indeed. Those words, those three words as the angel spoke them, revealed a truth that would literally change the course of history. Resonating out from that tomb, moving out from there. And we're not talking just about change the course of his little band of followers' lives. Those who were uh, you know, there and, and they, they knew him, they watched him, they saw he died, they're saddened by this. We're not talking only those who were, who were of the Jewish faith within the nation of Israel. We're not talking even the larger group of Israel as a nation as a whole. We're not talking simply about Rome, who was the occupying nation of Israel at the time. It resonated out around the world and throughout time that to this day the world is different Because of those three words, he is risen. And nothing in history has ever been the same. Christ was risen, and that changed everything. Now, as we contemplate that, relative to the intense uh, intense interest that those women had as they came to the tomb, I'd like to... Kind of take a little side route here, if you'll go with me. And I would like to make it clear that Jesus is not the only one whose grave has created intrigue. It's not the first time people have been intrigued by a grave. And Dave, I'm wondering if you could turn on for us. Okay, here's a character that um, maybe some of you recognize, you know who this is? You know who this is? All right. I guarantee you, if you don't know him now, you're going to see him referenced within the next year. I give you some hints. Every year, at least once, if you shop and you go buy the magazines where, you know, you buy your food or you go through Walmart and they have all those magazines, this guy will be referenced every year at least once. Do you know who I'm talking about? He always shows up. Nostradamus, exactly. This is Nostradamus, supposedly had these incredible prophecies. And I guarantee you, pay attention to the tabloids, and somewhere within the next year cycle again, they're going to tell you that he predicted this or that or some amazing thing, and we're all supposed to go, Woo, he was quite the guy. Nostradamus, uh uh-huh, that's the guy. Now, if I can remember how to do this. Now, it's not as clear as I would like, but I just want you to notice that it does have... His grave has this plate over it that indicates this is where his remains are. Nostradamus. His grave. It's interesting because he supposedly had all these incredible prophecies that he spoke. I found a caption to this picture quite interesting. It said, Nostradamus' current tomb in the Collegio St. Laurent in Salon, into which his scattered remains were transferred after 1789. You see, from the time he died in the 1500s till uh, the 1700s, things happened in France. And wars took place, and rebellions took place, and 
So his tomb was, his remains were protected and they were moved. And I just think it's interesting. It refers to his scattered remains. That's Nostradamus. That's his tomb right now. So that, that's a guy. He's interesting. We keep bringing him up. Show you another pic. So far, our historian Bob, he knows who's, who, what's what. Who's that? Recognize this guy? This guy, under this particular picture, here's the, here is the caption that read that this shows the greatest writer in the history of the English language, the playwright and poet, William Shakespeare. 1564 to 1660. He was born just a few years, like three or four years before Nostradamus would die. So for a very short time, their lives overlapped. Interesting, William Shakespeare. We're all familiar with him. Do you know he's back in the news a little bit? This is William Shakespeare's grave. And here's some of the stuff that it says about Shakespeare. Shakespeare was buried in 1616 at his hometown church, according to records kept by the Holy Trinity Church. Now, here's what's in the news. This is very recent. Scientists scanned William Shakespeare's gravesite in Holy Trinity Church in a study to be broadcast on British public TV. The ground-penetrating radar showed an odd disturbance where Shakespeare's skull should be, researchers said. So they have run ground-penetrating radar right over this thing, and you can get pictures of what they're, of what they're doing there with it. They're, they're on the Internet. And here's what one of the archaeologists have said who's done that ground-penetrating work. We have Shakespeare's burial with an odd disturbance at the head end, and we have a story that suggests that at some point in history, someone's come in and taken the skull of Shakespeare. It's very, very convincing to me that his skull isn't at Holy Trinity at all. And so speaks the lead researcher, Kevin Coles, that his body is here, but his skull is gone. In the article, some wag wrote, parting from this skull is such sweet sorrow. Because why would anybody take Shakespeare's skull? Well, the story that they suggest behind it is simply this. At this time in history, there was this, time, this area of science, so-called. There was this area of science called phrenology. Phrenology, they studied the shape and the humps and the, and the contusions on skulls. And by that, they figured they could understand intellect. They, could, they figured they could predict future. They could do all sorts of things. Eventually, they abandoned that. And they just said, okay, that doesn't produce anything. But during this time, it was understood. So people who were famous, their skulls, scientists wanted them. The doctors wanted them so they could get their skull and study their skull to understand what made them so smart, what made them so good at what they did. And so there were a number of skulls that were, it suggested, had been taken surreptitiously, of course, but had been taken in order to study them for this area called phrenology. Now, this next one, you will all know immediately, okay? All right, you know right away, who is that? King Tut, okay, also known as King Tutankhamun for his longer name. And you know him, if you're of my generation, you know him for two reasons. Number one, back in, was it the 70s? Okay, the stuff they found in his grave actually toured the museums in America. And number two, you know him because Steve Martin sang a song about King Tut, right? Now, if I'd known they'd line up just to see him, I'd 
Saved up all my money and bought me a museum. Go with me now. King Tut. There we are. You got it, right? Yeah, Steve Martin. All right. So he sang the song about him. You know, I love that line about he was buried in his jammy, should have won a Grammy. Okay. Born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia. King Tut. All right. So we know all about this character, King Tut, right? We're aware that he's an Egyptian pharaoh from somewhere in the 1300s. Okay. Well, did you know that his burial place is back in the news? Very intriguing. This is actually within the last couple of weeks now. As you look, you can see how there's a stairway and a a platform down that takes you into right here is where his sarcophagus was found with that burial mask. So by doing the same types of technologies that they did with Shakespeare's grave, while there, here's what they've noticed. There are two secret chambers off of his burial place, this is his burial place, one here, one here. And this one in particular has the archaeologists interested because the readings they're getting is that there is organic material in that chamber. Hmm. Raises a whole new set of questions. Very intriguing about King Tut's burial chamber because one wants to ask, what's in that second area that has organic material in it. And here is what they're hoping to find. You know what it is? They're hoping to find... One more time. Her. Exactly. Queen Nefertiti. Queen Nefertiti is a, is, is a stepmom to King Tut. Lived during that same time frame. Let's see. Here's, here's what we know about Queen Nefertiti. She was born in Thebes, Egypt. Born 1390. Died 1360. Remember, this is before Christ. That's why the numbers get smaller. Okay, so this is a long time before Christ. And she was an Egyptian queen, the great royal wife of Akhenaten, an Egyptian pharaoh. Nefertiti and her husband were known for a religious revolution in which they worshipped one god only, Aten, or the sun disk. Akhenaten and Nefertiti were responsible for the creation of a whole new religion which changed the ways of religion within Egypt. With her husband, she reigned at what was arguably the wealthiest period of ancient Egyptian history. Some scholars believe that she ruled briefly after her husband's death and before the accession of Tutankhamun, although that's a matter of debate. Her name means the queen of beauty. And it's, it, 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 I find this picture of this bust haunting because this thing was discovered in 1913. It's considered one of the most recognizable artifacts of ancient Egypt. And what I find amazing about it is she truly is beautiful. You look at that and go, how do you just look at this, this statuary thing and go, she was absolutely beautiful. And that's probably why they want to find her. It's like, man, what an interesting story. They have records of her. They have pictures of her on the Egyptian walls and hieroglyphs. And they show you she was here. She was here. She was with the king here. She was at this ceremony. And all of a sudden, she disappears. And they don't know what happened to her. And they've wondered for years, where is her grave? Where did she go? We just don't know. So there's a lot of intrigue about her. And they wonder, well, where do we go with this now? As the story just seems to, it just seems to end with nothing. So what I'm trying to point out, friends, on this little aside, this little history lesson, 
is very simply this. Jesus' tomb was not the only tomb that caused intrigue. The women came to that tomb that morning. They were intensely interested in that tomb. But there's nothing new about that. We're still trying to understand tombs that go back hundreds of years to millennia ago. Jesus' tomb was not the only tomb that caused intrigue. But it was. His tomb was qualitatively different than every other tomb in all history. There's a qualitative difference as to why his tomb is intriguing over every other tomb in history. You know what that is? Do you know why? You do know why. One last marker we're going to look at. This is a little more recent. This is Merv Griffin. How many remember Merv Griffin? Okay. Yeah, you've got to be my age before you understand. He was huge in the television production world. He was huge. He, when he was at the top of his game, I mean, he just, he was producing shows. He was on shows. He, you know, all sorts of shows that were out there that many of us grew up with or remember. Merv Griffin was behind them. I think it's interesting at what his burial what his, what his head plate says, the stone on Merv Griffin, and he speaks for all of these graves of history. If you can't read, it says, and it's underlined right here, I will not be back, be right back after this message. I will not be right back after this message. Of course, that's what have been one of the things in the shows. He said, well, I'll be right back after this message. No, I'm not. He's not coming out of that tomb. You could dig it up. His, his remains are still there. All right? He doesn't look as good as he did when he's on TV, but his remains are still there. He's not coming back. And that's the same thing that is true for all these other tombs. There's a body in every one of those. You see, they may just be scattered parts in Nostradamus' tomb, but they're there. The parts are there. Shakespeare may be missing a skull, but the rest of him is there. They, of course, have extracted King Tut out of his, but if that's the burial place of Queen Nefertiti, how will they know immediately if it's not her burial place? There's one thing can tell them immediately if it's not her burial place. How will they know that? They open it up and... There's nothing there. Oh, nope, she wasn't buried here. You know, for all the dreams and hopes and wishes that we could find that info, she wasn't buried here because this is empty. Then we all know, as Merv says, not coming back after any more messages. And they all stay right where they're placed. You see, friends, it is the empty tomb of the resurrected Christ that makes all the difference in the world. Many tombs are interesting. There's a lot of history you can look at and study and wonder about. That's true. But only one makes all the difference. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.4. I love this verse where Paul describing the gospel. He says it's about Christ who is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. 
It is what set Jesus Christ apart. When the ladies, the women came to the tomb that morning, they want to give Christ a proper burial. They're worried about the stone. They're worried about the authorities that are around that they may have to somehow sweet talk to get past them. They're worried about all of this. And they hear an angel say, he is risen. And everything changes at that place, at that time. All of history turns, friends. All of history turns and he is risen. He's different than all those other peoples. And we've only selected three. <laughs> There's many, many more. I actually had information on others. Like, yeah, I only have so much time that we could look at. But let's consider he was a, Jesus was indeed a prophet. Okay? So let's compare him as a prophet to Nostradamus. The prophet we're all supposed to be so impressed with. Here's what one writer writes about why we keep seeing, did Nostradamus predict this? Did Nostradamus predict that? Oh, wasn't he amazing? We're all supposed to be impressed by another tabloid to tell us the same thing. But here's why. Here's how one, the one writer put it. Their persistence, the, these supposed prophecies of Nostradamus, their persistence in popular culture seems to be partly because their vagueness and lack of dating make it easy to quote them selectively after every major dramatic event and, restro- and retrospectively claim that it's a hit. Understand what he's saying? He's saying it's so vague, there's nothing specific about it that you can find, because he had so many of them out there, you can find... In any event that takes place, something, oh, I can relate this to that, say, oh, Nostradamus predicted this, and then we can publish a tabloid once again, and people go spend their money and go, oh, let's see what Nostradamus predicted. He was really incredible. The guy's saying he wasn't incredible at all. You know what he is? He's another dead guy in a tomb is all he is. Unless you buy a tabloid for the sake of sermon illustration about Nostradamus, you're wasting your money. Give God's money to a mission or something, Okay. Don't buy another one to read about Nostradamus. He's gone, friends. But what was, what was Jesus' prediction? Jesus made some prophetic utterances, didn't he? We've already referenced one. What did he say? He said, destroy this temple, meaning his body. Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Well, it took place three days after he was put in a grave. We're celebrating it today, right? The tomb was empty. Very specific, very clear. And we are watching other of his prophecies being lived out, right? Matthew 24, 25. And what will be the sign of your coming? Because he's coming back, friends. And we're watching the world stage being set as Jesus described it would be. It's unfolding in front of us. As a prophet, Nostradamus has nothing upon Jesus Christ. What about Shakespeare? Great storyteller. Shakespeare, good job. Good job at identifying the emotions that we feel. Parting is such sweet sorrow. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. All these things that we identify. It's Shakespeare. And he could identify emotions that we have. And he maybe could write pretty good about them. Well, that's all fine. Great storyteller. But his storytelling doesn't communicate Absolute truth identifies emotions that we feel. But tell me something. What does Jesus do in his stories? He teaches truth. He teaches truth. He just doesn't identify with feelings. He teaches truth. Two men went up to the synagogue to pray. One a Pharisee. The other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee, lifted up his eyes towards heaven and said, I thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. I wash, I eat, I do all, follow all the rules. And he lists all of his self-righteousness before God. And Jesus says, and the tax collector did not even lift his eyes for heaven. He hung his head, he smote his breast, he said, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And then Jesus throws in the truth. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went away justified. Where do you find eternal truth with eternal authority in anything that Shakespeare writes? He doesn't have that kind of authority replete in him to communicate that. The prodigal son. Man had two sons. He's a wealthy man. One son, I want my stuff now. I want my inheritance now. So off he goes. Father gives him his inheritance. Son wastes his inheritance, winds up slopping pigs, realizes the pigs eat better than he does, realizes, as Jesus describes a story, when he came to his senses, he went back to his father and said, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. That was his plan. I'm just going to go tell him that, see if I can become a servant to him. I'll live better than I'm living now. Came back repentant, came back broken. And Jesus tells the most magnificent part of that story is that as the son is far off, the father sees him. You know what that means? The father's been waiting for him. The father's been looking for him. The father never once gave up loving him and hoping that his son would return. And he sees him and he runs and he meets him and he embraces him and he puts a ring on his finger and a robe on him and he says, kill the fatted calf because my son, which was dead, is now alive. And Jesus communicates eternal truth in this magnificent story that God loves every one of us. And he is looking for every one of us to return to him. And he will, he will just embrace us and hold us and celebrate our returning home if we will just come to our senses and recognize it's him that we need. Not all this other stuff that we're constantly pursuing. Truth. I will place the storytelling of the Lord Jesus Christ against anything Shakespeare has written at any time. And then we consider the, the tomb of King Tut. And perhaps they're going to find Nefertiti's tomb hidden away there, who reigned at a wealthy time in Egypt's history. She's still celebrated today, even though we don't quite know what happened to her. Able to change the entire religious system. And the Egyptians back then took their religion very seriously. Power, prestige, money, beauty. She had everything that we might desire. And her king husband and her king stepson also of course, had that. She was part of that elite system. But where are they? Well, we found King Tut's tomb. Passed his stuff around for all the world to see. Maybe they're going to find Nefertiti's tomb. But what do we know for sure about him? <laughs> they were right where they put him, weren't they? So their reign lasted for a very short period of time. In one little sliver of history. And that's their reign as king and queen. And that's their authority. And that's their power. But what do we know about Jesus Christ? When the tomb was empty, he 
raised again the third day. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and what? And he is coming again. And when he comes, he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians tells us that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know what that means? As they are awakened and they become, they're aware of all that is going on, all of these kings who thought they were all amazing will bow their knee to Jesus Christ, whether willingly or they're forced to. Every one of their knees will bow to this king whose tomb was empty and now he returns. And he will reign not for 10, 20, 50, 30 years, you know. He's going to reign for a thousand years on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He's going to reign over the entire earth. And when that's done, Satan's going to raise up a rebellion. He's going to defeat the rebellion, usher in eternity, and he will be king of kings and lord of lords for all of eternity. Woo! I don't think Nefertiti and King Tut begin to compare with who Jesus Christ is, whose tomb was empty. Everything changes when the angel announces he is risen. He's different than all others. And here's a cool thought, isn't it? His death, that death that we, that we celebrated Friday night here, and we're, or we reflected on, I don't know that we celebrated, but we remembered, we reflected on, his death is beneficial. Romans 4 tells us that he was delivered up for our offenses and raised again for our justification. He went to that cross because God determined that he was to be the, the sin bearer on our behalf. God delivered him to that cross so that he might become sin for us, that he might become that perfect sacrifice. And the fact that the tomb was empty three days later indicates that God received this sacrifice as acceptable and perfect and satisfactory. And now we can be forgiven. That's why Paul writes, he says, you know, I've given up all of my religious background in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the transforming life that he wants to bring into me. I give everything else up for it. It's why that empty tomb is why he was able to say, because his death meant something, and his resurrection confirms that his death was received. That's why he was able to say, you know, the two, the two thieves that were, that were um, hung with him, all right, one of them eventually came to a point of being penitent. He said, Lord, remember him when you come into your kingdom. He said, this day you shall be with me in glory. How can he make that statement? Because he knew, although he, as he becomes the, the sin bearer for all of mankind, he knew this isn't going to be the end of his life. Hebrews tells us that as he, he despised the cross but looked forward to the glory that would follow. And that's why he was willing to go there. It's why he is able to say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because his death means something. And the power of the resurrection confirms the value of his death and its significance. And that it was effectively accepted by God. And out of that he can go in and he can kick down the gates of hell and he can pull out the people whom he chooses and he holds them and he saves them. And they are secure and Satan will never again have ownership upon them. Friends, let's wrap this up if we could please. Five very quick thoughts. Christ is risen, and that makes all the difference. Nostradamus, Shakespeare, Nefertiti, and anybody else you want to look at as ancient people and find information on their tombs, they're all still there. 
Christ alone is risen. Second, Christ is able to save us. What can Nostradamus, Shakespeare, Nefertiti do for us? What did their deaths do for us? Anything at all? Is there any value in their death? It's fun to think about finding Nefertiti's tomb and, and seeing if, yeah, that's really her, and they'll do all the tests, and it'll be amazing, and they'll fill in some gaps in the understanding of history, but does that do a thing for you and I eternally? won't do a thing. Nothing. Because she's incapable of doing anything. But you know, the death of Jesus Christ is able to save us. Sin is our problem, friends. Let's be honest. Sin is what separates us from God. And Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as we've been trying to say here this morning, are the only remedy that God offers in his word to the problem of sin in each of our lives. We all got the problem. There's only one remedy. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection were so effective, so good, so powerful, it's able to answer the sin problem for every one of us. But we have to receive it. Plain and simple. We appropriate it by faith. How else do you do it? How else can you do it other than just receive it? The Bible speaks of our salvation as a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. What do you do other than receive the gift? We had, we had a very pleasant little surprise yesterday afternoon. Uh, Kim and Mary pulled into our yard. And Mary gets out of the pickup and she comes up and immediately I know what she's got. Mary's got a little plate with some of her cookies decorated for Easter. Now, if you've never seen Mary's cookies, these are works of art, and I mean that seriously. I had to ask Kim, Kim, is it okay if I get these? Because they're so beautiful. He, I can picture him grudging all the way going, are we really going to give these away? He spent a lot of time and money on these, and they taste great. Why are you giving them away? All right? I could imagine Kim. He's not very generous. so I could. <laughs> Mary is. So I said, Kim, is it okay if I take these? He went, yeah, all right. What could he say? Lori was coming out, you know? I, I think he was going to want to arm wrestle me for him until Lori was coming out. Well, I guess we have to now. But anyways, they come very graciously. They give us just the fact that they brought them. Are they ours? Do we have the blessing of those cookies yet? No. They offer them to us. We have the blessing of the cookies yet? No. What do we have to do? We had to receive the cookies. Okay? There was no second guessing on our part. Mary's cookies? Of course. Thank you. We think this is wonderful. Easter is going to be incredible this year. All right? Mary's cookies. We're happy to get them. But we could have rejected them. We have no value of Mary's cookies. And that's what we're trying to remind each of us here today, friends. God offers salvation as a gift. It must be received. It must be received. How sad would it be that we celebrate this death, burial, and resurrection all of this energy, all this great stuff, all this great news. And then we walk out here going, yeah, but I think I'll pass. Keep the cookies, Lord. <sighs> May none of us leave here today without knowing with a certainty that all we have celebrated has been applied to our own lives because we have come to that place of, Lord, I'm going to quit fighting you. I'm going to quit arguing with you. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus Christ. And I receive him now. Come into my life and save me, friends. It is that simple. All we can do is receive it. You've got a better way to receive it. How do you take a gift? What do you do other than receive a gift? But it has to be done. So he's able to save us. He's able to keep us. He said no one could snatch us out of his hands. And we come to that place where that, that real transaction has happened. He will keep us as his children. And he is able to use us. See, he didn't just save us. Say, okay, great, you're saved. It's all done. He says, now look it. Here's the cool thing. I'm still saving people. 
I'm still reaching, kicking down the gates of hell and reaching in and pulling people out. You know it's really fun when you become a part of that process. And so I'd like you now to be one who's helping reach others with this incredible message that changed the world. And I'd like to suggest, friends, here's an easy way to start. Because some of us sit here go, I don't know where I could fit into that. I don't know how that would work. I don't know. And I'd like to tell you, we got a way to make it work. We're not talking about going around the world to missions. We're talking about being a home mission. No, no more home mission than being a missionary right here. This Tuesday night, we're going to revitalize our hospitality committee. See, we have Brent and Amy Albers who attend here. You know why they, they, they gave us this testimony back in that room last fall? You know why they attend here? Years ago, we had the, the um, hospitality committee going. And uh, Mike and Brenda took them out to eat. Just took an interest in them. They said, wow, this church cares for people. They kept coming. They're still here. How cool is that? Huh? That's what they pointed back to. We said, man, we've got to revitalize that. We, we let it go because the, the restaurant kept changing hands. We couldn't keep up with it. So this Tuesday night, we're going to give you a chance how to learn to be a home missionary. You know what it means? You know, it takes nothing more than this. Is that after a church service on a Sunday morning, you're just willing to look around and go, who might be new today? Who haven't I seen before? I'm going to go talk to them. And if you find out, yeah, they are new, you have the opportunity to take them out to eat. Maybe not that day. You may have to reschedule it. You might not be available. They may not be available. But you get to take them out to eat. And we'll pay for it as a church. So we need families. Because some people are going to be taking out families. We need older people. We need younger people. We need singles. We need married. We need all types. Who will come and just say, you know what? I'm going to be a home missionary. I'm going to make it on days when I'm available. And, I, and I'm here at church. I'm just going to look around to see who might be new. And I'm going to reach out just a little bit of love and a little bit of care for them. We've already seen that it works. So he's able to use us. 7 o'clock this, sun, this Tuesday night. Got to be trained in order to be a part of this. And it'll only take about an hour, two hours max, depending on the amount of questions people have. But I hope a lot of you will come. We'll do it right here in the man cave. All right? So we're going to, Christ is able to use us. And lastly, friends, and this is where we started. And Mike was right as we saw the energy that was here. Christ is worthy of our praise, our love. And our total devotion. The life spent serving Jesus Christ is not a life wasted. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thanks for this magnificent truth. He is risen and everything is changed because of it. We celebrate that, Lord. We give you honor and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.